After seven weeks, I timed that perfectly. Pretty, pretty excited about that. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. You guys don't seem to care, but hey, how about those Christmas songs? Ah, you excited about that? Two of you are? That's good. Okay, well, Merry Christmas to you guys. Um, we're still going to have some Christmas songs coming up. We're getting ready for the Christmas season. Turkey's over. Time for the Christmas ham and, uh, or whatever you have at Christmas. Um, hopefully you're excited about that. We've got our Christmas services. Actually, the series starts next Sunday. And uh, then we have our Christmas services that will be in line with that, ser- that series. <laughs> wow, you guys are like, what's your problem this week? You're supposed to be, that's a good jokes, man. I'm wasting these things, you know. I work hard. I spend a lot of time thinking about these things. Anyway, so hopefully uh, you can grab one of these cards. You can invite people to it. There's, uh, you've been gifted. So the idea there is you had a restaurant or gas station or whatever, and uh, you can actually pay for someone's meal or their gas or coffee or whatever, and then have the attendant or who's ever taking care of you guys to hand that to them as you've been gifted. And uh, the Cantwells know all about that. That happened to them down in Fremont several years ago, so that was kind of cool. And they found out about our church, so <clears throat> make sure you, you grab several of those cards, and um, it's good. So Christmas, right, it's the beginning of Jesus' life here on earth, right? Uh, he came with a mission. His mission was to uh, glorify God, but to do it through obeying him and dying on the cross for us to save us from our sin. And uh, he, he came, he was born, <clears throat> lived a perfect life in our place, that perfect life that we should have or, or should have lived or could have, couldn't have lived, but needed to have happen, this perfection. He dies a horrific death on the cross, and that was him taking our eternal death sentence on himself, on our behalf. Then he rose from the dead and he defeated sin, sin's power in our lives, and sin's consequences of eternity in hell. And then he rose to go back into God's presence. And when he did that, he said, I'm going to come again. I'm going to come again, and I'm going to take all those who have placed their faith in me, I'm going to take you to where I am, into the presence of God. The first century church, they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, and and some of the people here in Thessalonica, this town um, that Paul is writing to some Christians, they thought that they had maybe missed it. So they were concerned, and they they reached out to Paul and said, hey, Remind us of, of what was going on. Some, some were fearful that he had already come back. So Paul explained in his first letter that Jesus hadn't come back yet. <clears throat> they were not in this tribulation period that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. And that they were to continue to do the good stuff that they've been doing. Uh, sacrificially loving each other, reaching people for Christ, sharing the gospel with them, and we know that Jesus has, still hasn't come back, and we're okay with that. Peter tells us in his, one of his letters that the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet is because all those who are going to put their faith in him have not put their faith in him yet. And so he's, he's a patient God. He's waiting for people to place their faith in him. So when he comes back, he'll come back. He promised he's going to come back, so we believe he's going to come back. So we were looking at this question, what should we do until then? Because that's what Paul's purpose was in writing these letters. What do Christians do as they wait for Christ to return? 
what do we focus in on? So 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, Paul is going to give some final instructions. You can turn there if you'd like to, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's the last part of this letter. It's, uh, I think it's page 1185 if you're using the Bible there in the chairs. And so Paul's going to give them some final instructions. And we're going to finish up our series today. Now in this chapter, he doesn't reference any end time events. And I know that you guys are sitting here on the edge of your seat wanting to know more. And so Paul left you hanging. So you can leave, you know, take that up with him when you get to heaven one of these days, and you can talk to him about, hey, why do you leave us hanging? I'm not going to do that, okay? Because I love you guys. I'm not going to leave you hanging. So we're going to go to Apostle John, and he had the, the book of Revelation, right? This freaky book. A lot of people go, yeah, that's such a scary book. And, and it is. It's, I mean, it's pretty interesting. The guys, uh, we're going through it on Thursday nights at 7 so feel free, guys, if you want to come out, if you haven't been, um, and walk through that with us. But, um, so I'm going to give you just real quick summary of what's going to happen according to what the Bible teaches, and we believe uh, the Bible is, is accurate and is going to happen. So at the end of the seven-year <clears throat> tribulation period where the Antichrist is kind of controlling this world, and again, it's, it's not a far-fetched idea, I mean, the way our world is going, how global it is anyways, and how to get together on everything, including COVID. And, you know, the banking industry is trying to get together so that they can control all the banking. You know, it's, uh, if you know anything about history, you know this always happens where the world tries to join together. And that's going to continue happening. The Bible tells us eventually it's going to happen. And then there's going to be a seven-year <clears throat> tribulation. The church will be gone. Those who are followers of Christ will be gone. Seven-year tribulation. And then Christ is going to come again. It's a second coming. The reason why we call it the second coming is because he's going to come physically to the earth. And so he's going to go up against the Antichrist and all those who are following him. And they're going to come up against Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is going to come back physically to the earth. He's going to wipe them out. And he's going to set up what we call the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennial kingdom. So, again, the rapture is Jesus in the air, as we put it. Second coming is him physically on earth. And so when he, get, when he comes, he's going to bind Satan. In other words, Satan won't be able to influence anyone anymore. <clears throat> Those who are entering into the millennial kingdom are primarily Jewish believers, Jewish people who place their faith in Christ. And so they will be brought into the millennial kingdom. The rest will all have been killed by Jesus and his judgment. The cool thing here is that this is going to be a physical fulfillment of the promises that God made all the way back in the Old Testament. So when he said to Abraham, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Uh, a lot of people are going to come from you, and I'm going to give you as this landmass that your people are going to live in. They've never had that landmass until Jesus Christ comes. And so when they, these Jewish believers enter into the millennial kingdom, they're going to have the physical fulfillment of God's promise that he gave back to Abraham, they gave to King David and all these Old Testament saints. And so he'll fulfill Abraham, the promise to Abraham, with a large chunk of earth, you know, a land mass. He's going to fulfill to King David the fact that there's going to be a king who reigns on David's throne for eternity. It's going to start here on earth with Jesus Christ in this kingdom. The interesting thing is, we know, like I said, we know the Jews who have placed their faith in Christ, that God's going to supernaturally protect from the Antichrist, that 
they're going to be in the millennial kingdom. But if you go back into the Old Testament to Daniel, Daniel references what some believe that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, um, King David, Solomon, all those who are followers of, of God, that they would actually be raised and they're going to actually experience the fulfillment personally, uh, which is kind of a cool thing. But again, um, we won't be here. We'll be uh, you know, with Christ in heaven. So we're not sure how we're going to interact, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ and have been raptured. But Revelation 20 then, after a thousand year reign of Christ on earth, he's going to release Satan. Satan is going to influence all uh, those who are offspring of those who came into the millennial kingdom. So it's a thousand years. Life continues on in a sense. It's evil has, is being suppressed, but um, you know people are still going to be having kids, and the kids are going to have kids, you know that type of thing. And so there's going to be however many millions of people on the earth, and Satan is going to deceive some of those. So if you think about it, this, Jesus Christ is going to be on the earth, reigning in Jerusalem. People can literally go physically see him, and there's still going to be some who reject who he is and what he offers, which is mind-blowing, but it just shows the sinfulness of mankind. And so he's going to deceive, Satan's going to deceive some, they're going to rebel against Christ, they're going to come up against Christ as, as he's in Jerusalem, and there's going to be one final battle, which is more just of Jesus saying a word, and everyone who has rejected him from Satan to the Antichrist, to human beings who have rejected him, will then be judged. The great white throne judgment happens in Revelation 20, towards the middle section, and they'll be standing before God, and God will say, hey, your name's not written in the, the book of life, and they will be sent off to hell, and then all of that is sent into what they call a lake of fire for eternal judgment. Revelation 21 and 22 are two chapters we don't spend a whole lot of time in. But I would encourage you that on a regular basis, you read Revelation 21 and 22. Because Revelation 21 and 22 are all about this new heaven and this new earth that God's going to create for us. So we believe God created this world. We believe he created it perfect. Adam and Eve sinned, brought sin into the world, brought sin into us. That's why our world is such a nasty place to live. I mean, it has beauty, right? There is some beautiful things in this world. Human beings are beautiful people. I mean, when you think about it, it's just unbelievable. But there's sin, right? And there's disease and there's weeds. And we do stupid things and we keep messing things up because of of sin. Well, God's going to wipe all that out. The earth itself, the universe that we see, he's going to destroy all of it and start over new. So we're not going to be sitting on on, uh, clouds playing harps you know, making sure that our wings look nice. We're not going to become angels. We're not doing that. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us about this incredible world and universe that God is going to create for us that has no sickness, that has no sin, that has no crying in it, and we get to go and spend time, eternity, with God in this new physical, spiritual world that just kind of blows our mind. And I would encourage you, like I said, read it. If you have followers of Christ in your family who are you know, getting close to that time where you're going to enter into God's presence, you know, my mom a year ago, my dad here recently, when, my, when I was with my mom a year ago, I was reading her these two chapters just to remind her, man, this is what you got looking forward to. This is, and when I was there visiting my dad, you know, telling him, dad, this is what you got to look forward to. 
This is awesome. Well, anyways, so that's kind of how things play out. And we have an incredible thing waiting for us. This incredible place that we get to be a part of. But until then, we've got some work to do. We've got the things that we as followers of Christ need to be doing. And Paul's closing out his letter here. So this is his second letter to Thessalonian Christians. And we looked at the first one earlier. We're in the second one. Chapter 3, he's finalizing some things. And he gets, goes back to what he's been talking about. He goes back to what Jesus has commanded all Christians to do. What Paul writes about and what Paul has committed his life to do. What he's been saying to the Thessalonians, you guys are doing an awesome job. Keep doing it. He wants, us to, wants them and us to continue on focusing on two basic foundational things in our lives. And so I'm not going to ask you which, what they are because first service, it was just, I just felt like I'm a terrible teacher. Nobody knows what we've been talking about the last seven weeks. So I'm just going to bypass that because I have emotions and, and I don't want to feel down and discouraged. And uh, so the first one that we're going to look at comes out of verses 1 through 5, and that is to keep sharing the gospel. All right, so the first thing that we need to be doing is, as followers of Christ, if you're sitting here this morning, you've placed your faith in Christ sometime in the past, this is the number one thing you need to be focusing on. And this is what he says. <clears throat> Finally, brethren and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord, this gospel message, will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from, the, from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And that's, you know, our confidence isn't in you guys, even though you're doing a great job. It's, it's really in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do what we commanded. So this previous teaching, both personally that he has and in his letters, and then they used to send letters around from church to church to church as well. It says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And so the first thing he's saying is we need to keep sharing the gospel. Now, Paul and his team, they had a job to do. Their job was to go and travel around. They went from town to town to town. And as they went to a town, they shared the gospel. Typically, they got persecuted. They got beat up. They left that town and they went to another town. When they got to that town, they preached the gospel, they got persecuted, they got beat up, and then they were sent to another town. And they just kept on doing that. It didn't matter if they were being persecuted, it didn't matter if they were being beaten up. Paul was beaten almost to the point of death several times. And so he's saying, hey, while we do this, while we accomplish our God-given mission, pray for us. Pray that this message goes out, that it's, it's as effective as it was in Thessalonica, and we know the story of what happened in Thessalonica, that the vast majority of these people who placed their faith in Christ, they were actually doing life God's way, and they were sharing Christ, they were sacrificing for each other. They were doing a great job. Not everybody accepted the message. They went into towns. Not every town really grabbed hold of the message. And so he said, hey, you know, just pray that, that we'd be rescued from these uh, perverse and evil Men. What he's talking about is just men and women who were morally wicked and behaviorally wicked. They, they shared uh, they, what was in their hearts came out, and they went after Paul and, and other Christians. He says, hey, if, if possible, just pray that we're rescued from them. I mean, right? I, nobody really wants to be persecuted. Right? Can we just be honest? Paul would, 
I'm sure would have rather maybe not have been so persecuted and just gone around and have maybe an easy town to go to. And so he just prays for that. Ask them to pray for them. But then Paul says, you know, I, I know that God's going to be faithful to you. I, I've experienced, especially in, a, in persecution, God's faithfulness. So I know he's going to be faithful to you in what your mission is. What was the Thessalonians', Thessalonians um, mission? Their mission was to do the same thing that Paul and his team were doing, but just in their area, in their community, in their surrounding area. As they went about their life and they interacted with people that they worked with, their family and their friends, as they traveled on business, they were supposed to continue to do the same. And Paul knew that the Lord will be faithful. What would he be faithful to do? He would be faithful to strengthen them. That word there is sterizo. We get our word steroids from it. It means to, to cause to be inwardly firm and committed. So Paul says, I know the Lord's going to be faithful. He's going to cause you to be strengthened. God is the one who's going to cause them to be strengthened. It's not something that they're going to try to well up inside of them. It's something that they look to God for, and then God, through the Holy Spirit, empowers them, strengthens them, causes them to be inwardly firm and committed in the face of whatever persecution they may face, and they were dealing with persecution. They were not uh, unscathed in this situation. He says that God is the one who's going to protect you. That Greek word has this idea of holding close. If you can kind of picture, I know God is spirit, but if you can kind of picture him with his arms around us and around them, and as they went through life, God was protecting them. He was holding them close. And he said he'll protect us from the evil, the evil one or the evil. It could be either one. So either he's going to protect you from the evil, just that general evilness that happens in our world, or the evil one, the one who influences people in that direction, which we know would be Satan. But here's, here's the key thing to pull from this. That God never fails. Feel free to write that down. God never fails. Everything that God does, He completes. Every mission He gives, He supplies. What He calls us to do as Christians, in this case, sharing the gospel... He will provide. He'll give us what we need. He'll strengthen us. He'll protect us. He'll give us what we need to be able to share the gospel with other people. He never fails. Look what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For I am confident of this very thing that he, talking about God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it. He will perfect it. It's not, I wonder if he will. I'm not sure if he will. I'm not sure if I can trust him on it. No, he will perfect it until, or complete the work for the day of Christ. God, those of us who place our faith in Christ, whatever that's been, however long we've been a Christian, God is moving us closer and closer to become like Jesus. Not to become Jesus, not to become a God, but to become more like Him, to look like Him, to think like Him, to act like Him, to talk like Him, to respond to people like Him. And He never fails you will get to that point of spiritual maturity that God wants you at when He says it's time for you to get there. And He's going to do whatever it takes in your life to get you there. And so if you're battling with Him on things, let me just give you some personal experience um, advice. Don't battle Him on it. Do whatever it takes for you to do what He's calling you to do. Don't wrestle with Him. He's bigger than you. 
Do what he calls you to do. Trust him. He'll strengthen you. He'll protect you. He'll keep you from the evil one. He'll keep you from the evil. If you want to say it that way, it's the wrong decisions that we would normally make that destroy our lives. God doesn't fail. And because he doesn't fail, Paul's confident that they're going to be effective as they continue to do life God's way. They just needed to be committed to doing that. And I'm just, I am constantly reminded of how difficult that is for human beings to do life God's way. I'm constantly, and in my own life, I'm not just saying, I'm not looking at everybody else, I'm my own life. I'm constantly amazed at how easily I take what I think I should do and say that's what I should do. And then I read what God's Word says I should do, and I'm just like, no, I'm kind of liking what I thought. I thought that was a better way of responding to it. No, I, I don't do that. He wants to free me from the evil. He wants to keep me from destroying my life. And so he says, in doing that, as, they are, as he's confident that the Lord's going to do this, he says, they needed that the Lord to direct their hearts into the love of God. They needed to let the Lord direct their hearts into the love of God. What is he saying there? We're, we know that we're called to love God and love others, right? The great command. But that love is not our love. That love comes from God. So God's saying, I want you to love me. And we're like, man, it's so hard to love you. Yeah, we can't do it. We've we got to get it through our heads. Nothing in and of ourselves is worth anything and doesn't help us accomplish anything. It's only what God does in and through us. So this is the great news. So God is going to develop in us a love for him and a love for others. You may be thinking, man, there's so-and-so in my life. I just can't stand that person. Okay, that's you. You can't stand them. I get it. There's been people in my life that I can't stand. I'm, I know there's been people in my life who can't stand me. That's okay. Because God's the one who's going to give you the love for him and the love for others. Where does that come from? I hate to say it if you've been part of our church for any length of time. If you're a first-time attender, this is going to be new to you maybe. But everybody else who's here hears this every week. It's by having time with God in his word. We just can't get away from spending time in the Bible. It's God's word. And so we spend time with him in his word. We read it. We talk to him about it. We write things down. We do what we got to do in order to get it to get into our brains. And that's different for everybody else. I do a lot of writing. I go... I got, Justin, my son-in-law, gave me G2 pens. It's a, a tub this big of G2 pens. Because I'll go through a pen probably every two or three weeks. Because yeah, I'm, I'm writing, because I'm not smart enough to just go read something, oh, that's what that means. No, I've got to read it, I've got to write it down, I've got to check words, I've got to look, you know, I, I'm, I, know, I know you guys think that I'm very intelligent. I'm not. <laughs> I know I look it, I know, but I'm not. I've I got to work. At this, I, anyways, I'll get on. So we spend time with him. Then he says that they needed to let the Lord direct their hearts into the steadfastness of Christ. That steadfastness means to hold up in the face of difficulty. It means patient determination. So when you're trying to share the gospel with people, and when you're trying to do life God's way, it's not easy. People around you won't make it easy. That's okay. Because... God is the one who's going to direct your heart into that patient steadfastness, that patient determination. God does it. 
How does he do it? Well, it's interesting. He says into the steadfastness of Christ. So it's in his word, but Christ, and we talk about the church being the body of Christ. It's going to be the church body around you, helping you do that, encouraging you, praying for you. So we, not only do we need to spend time with God and his word, we need to be with our church family. We need to be here on Sundays. We need to be here on Thursdays. It's not just because, you know, a pastor wants more people in the chairs. Yes, only in the sense that because then more and more people will start doing life God's way. And then we'll be able to make more of an impact in the world around us. So here's another huge point. It is the Lord who does this. It's the You don't do it. I don't do it. It's not us. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then we keep failing. No, it's the Lord who does it in us. And it starts with us being in his word, reading it, ingesting it, thinking about it, memorizing it, studying it. And then being with his church family, and then we start sensing his strength. We, we know his protection. We see him working in and through us. So we keep sharing the gospel. That's the first thing. But what's the second thing? Don't answer. Just listen to this melodious tones. It's keep sacrificing for each other. So we keep sharing the gospel with those who need Christ, and we keep sacrificing for each other. That's what that love, the word love means, at least this particular word. When we love others, as Paul talks about, it's agape love. It's self-sacrificial love, looking out for the best of somebody else, no matter what it might cost us. And I don't just mean money. It may mean them not liking us, them being frustrated with us, them calling us names, rejecting us. But there's a continuing problem in the Thessalonian church. So Paul's going to take this whole idea of keep sacrificing, and he wants to fix a problem, an issue that's happening in this church. And so let's see what he's got to say here. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother or Christian person who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition that what Paul and the apostles have been teaching and writing, which you receive from us. So you're thinking, wait, 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 keep sacrificing, but now you're, Paul's telling people to stay away from people. Kind of weird. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined, which is the same word as unruly, undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. We know that Paul lived, stayed with a guy named Jason. Paul and his team stayed with a guy named Jason. And what he's saying there is when they were with Jason, there was, it wasn't... a you know, where they just kind of hung out and he took care of them, it was more of a bed and breakfast type of thing where they paid for it. They paid for the room and board. They didn't have to because they were technically pastors, apostles, and so the church was supposed to take care of them. But Paul didn't want to set that precedent, especially in Thessalonica. And so what he did is, I'm going to do what you guys need to be doing and I'm going to work hard. Uh, he was a tent maker, so he used to make tents. I'm going to do that and then I'm going to get the money I need, and I'm going to provide for myself, and I'm going to pay. If anybody wants to help me, I'm going to pay them. Pretty cool. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. 
whoa. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined or unruly life, doing no work at all. He's talking to Christians, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brother, those who are working and sacrificing, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that, will be, uh, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace, so he closes out now, may the Lord of, of peace himself continue to grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And then I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so he says, all right, we got an issue in your church. I talked about it when I was visiting you. He was there for about a month. You guys wrote me. I wrote you a letter about this, First Thessalonians, and he addresses it there. Now he's addressed it again, and then he says, so if anybody else keeps doing this, this is how you need to respond. So he's talking about how do Christians sacrificially love other Christians? in a hard situation, and in this situation specifically, with Christians who are choosing not to work. So he's not talking about people who are unable to work. We know as a church family that there's somebody in our church who, who uh, can't work. And we know we have government agencies, and we've got, you know, people look to the government, and they trust the government, and they put their faith in the government. You know, we get that. But what God calls is for Christians to take place their faith in him, and part of that is saying, hey, church family, you need to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And so we get that. First Timothy 5 talks about that. In the first century, they had massive needs. The vast majority of Christians were poor. And not only were they poor, so they didn't have really good jobs, a lot of them lost their jobs because they placed their faith in Christ. The, the people didn't like that. Government didn't like that. But these disobedient Christians, even after Paul tells them personally and writes a letter about it, they're still choosing for whatever reason. There's a bunch of reasons why they, that people say why they weren't working. The point is they weren't working and they were disobeying God. And so they were still not working after God told them to through Paul. And of course, this was frustrating to the obedient Christians because they were trying to take care of people. But then they also had these other people wanting their money, their time, their, their energy. So Paul gives some direction for both the obedient Christians and the lazy Christians. And the, it's directly mainly to the obedient ones. But the first one he says, oh, let me back up. But he calls them, so he calls the lazy Christians unruly, undisciplined, busybodies, and disobedient. So what does he mean by that? So unruly, dis, undisciplined, it just means to be irresponsible. And in context here, they're being lazy. They're not doing the work that they've been commanded to do by God, not just in Paul's writing, but from Genesis chapter 2 all the way through. A busybody, it means to be a meddler or someone who interferes. And so it has this idea in this situation that they're interfering in the lives of the obedient Christians by sucking up their energy, their time, their resources, and not allowing them to have the freedom to go take care of people who really needed to be taken care of. And then they didn't obey. 
Obey means to follow instructions. So they weren't following the instructions that God had given them. And so they weren't working. They were taking up the time and the energy and the finances, the resources of the obedient Christians. And this was causing issues in the church, causing frustration, disunity. It was making Christ look bad. The God that we worship had people who didn't care about anybody else but themselves. And so it makes God look bad. You mean the God you worship can't take care of you? You mean you don't trust to do life the way your God that you worship tells you to do it? Then he says, so that's a, yeah, I'm ahead, I got ahead of myself, I think. Right? You with me, Hagen? Okay. So here's the, here's the way you're going to solve this issue. Yeah, I think we're on. So here's how we're going to solve the issue. First one is this. Obedient Christians keep away from those who choose, choose not to work. Doesn't that sound like that doesn't sound right? It seems like that's not very nice. That's not very mean. Or that isn't mean. It's not a very nice thing. Well, the word stello, keep away, means to keep one's distance or avoid association with. And so what Paul's saying, number one, you who are obedient, don't follow their example. Don't follow them down that path. Don't get to the point where you're like, well, they seem to have it pretty easy. Everyone's taking care of them. I'm going to stop being one of those people who are taking care of others, and I'm going to let people take care of me. Because sometimes that happens. And we see it in our political system, right? People get paid to stay home. Then they don't go to work. Because they're getting paid to stay home. Stay in your, in your jammies, Right? Watch TV, be on your phone, and the government pays for you. It's awesome. Not really. And so he's saying, don't go down that way. Don't, don't become lazy. Don't become so discouraged that you think that the way of doing it is the right way. Lazy Christians. He says, you are to quietly work and eat your own bread. So what's he mean by that? Well, that word in the Greek for quietly, it means to do something without disturbance or fanfare. Don't make a big deal. Don't complain. And so it has this idea, like, so if you kind of just picture this, they're in Thessalonica and, and, and they're reading this and there's somebody who been, hasn't been working and it's been an issue and so then they kind of talk to them. The person goes, fine, 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 I'll go get myself a job. Sure, look at me, I'm getting a job. Oh boy, you know, it's, it has that kind of feel to it. And he's saying, Listen, don't, no fanfare, just go get a job. You're capable. Go represent me well. Go find a job so you can be able to meet your needs. There always seems to be an excuse with people. Well, there's this, and, and then there's that. No, no excuses. You're capable. Go find a job. Let God provide you with a job that you can do because God knows better than you do what you can do. So just be faithful. Go find a job. Paul's already said, you don't work, you don't eat. And so, and again, this is... Paul's speaking on behalf of God. See, you understand that work is sacred. Work is holy. Work is something that God gave Adam before he ever committed sin in the garden, in a perfect world. Even if we're in a perfect world, if you go to Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see people are working. Why? Because work, serving God through what we do in our lives, letting him provide for us through what we do, that's worship. That's holy. And if we're not doing it, we're not representing him well. 
We're not experiencing Him meeting our needs. We're not experiencing the opportunity of getting on our hands and knees. God, I need you, you need to provide for my needs. And, and then He provides the job. I'm not saying we don't help people for a period of time, but we, you, you, you got to be moving. You got to be doing what God called you. You got to trust Him. Matthew 6.33, Jesus, this is one of my favorite verses of all time. Jesus telling us a promise from God. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, God's kingdom, God's righteousness. Do life God's way for his purposes. Be obedient to God so that people can see what you're doing, so that you can tell them about Jesus Christ, so they can come to faith in Christ, and now his kingdom is growing. And so it's his kingdom and it's his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What? All, his, all the needs that you have, which is what the entire verses before that were all about. We do it his way. Jesus saying, God's going to provide for what you need. Not what you want, what you need, and what you need to accomplish what he's called you to do. Not what you think you need for what you want to do, what your mission is, but what God's called you to do. And as it brings glory to God through an obedient life that draws people to Christ for salvation. And Paul finishes up. Two more things. He says this. First of all, Christians are not to grow weary in doing good. Doing good in what? Well, caring for people who need to be cared for. Don't grow weary in that. Keep doing it. God's going to provide for you. But also, the good in sitting down with somebody who's not doing it God's way and saying, hey, you need to get this straightened out. Here's what God's Word says, and we want to help you get that taken care of. That's good. That's loving. Don't grow weary in doing that. Be faithful to sit with somebody and help somebody understand where they need to get things in order in life so they can do life God's way and experience God providing for them. And then lastly, if after all this, there is still somebody in your church who's calling themselves a Christian who's still not getting it, Paul says, you're not to associate with those who don't work, but you are to admonish them. So, not associate. Kind of the same thing as the word before. It means you know, not to mingle, not to hang out with them. It has this idea of um, close relationship with. Because when you start getting close with somebody, you start becoming like them. Um, and so he's saying, don't, don't become closely associated with them because we don't want you to become like them. Don't, uh, what you want to do when, when you kind of remove fellowship from them in that sense, you want to put them to shame. Now, again, it just seems, Paul, why do you use these words? They just seem so harsh. What he's talking about there, that word, Greek word, means they all understood it's an inward look. You start self evaluating. You go, okay, God's word says this, and my brother and sister in Christ, they're telling me this, and this is what my life is. Maybe I need to make some adjustments. And so it's that. It's that self evaluation that causes you to repent, to turn from what you're doing and do it. God's way. So hopefully when we respond this way to people, the truly followers of Christ, they're going to repent. They're going to change what they're doing. And then we admonish them. We don't treat them as an enemy. They're still a brother or sister in Christ, but we admonish them. And that, that word there just means to counsel them biblically, to give them understanding from what God's word says, what needs to happen next, what needs to be corrected, what needs to be added in, and we just do that. Loving someone isn't always the fun, warm, fuzzy, right? Not always just being able to go give somebody a big old hug. 
Sometimes there's a cold prickly involved. Sometimes there's a, the need to sit somebody down and say, listen, I love you. And because I love you, I need to share this truth with you, with you. And we're not sharing truth in a mean way. We're not beating them over the head with it. We're gentle. We're loving. We're, we're just sharing truth with them. We're there for them. We're encouraging them. See, being a Christian is not complex. It really isn't. It's not easy, but it's not complex. We really have two things. Once we love God and love others, in that, we just need to be sharing the gospel with people, and we need to be sacrificially loving each other as a church family. When we do that, we represent Christ well. When we do that, people understand who Christ really is, not some false definition that we may be giving by not doing life his way. We're going to close out this week. We're not going to have any music to close things out. I thought we'd change it up just a little bit. But I'm just going to share a couple takeaways, and then for you just to kind of think on these things and, and prayerfully, one, okay, Lord, where, where are we at? You know, where am I at in my life, and where do I need to make adjustment? So here they are. First one, keep sharing. You know, if you're currently praying for those who need Christ and you're looking for opportunities to share Christ with them and God's bringing people into your life, man, just keep doing it. Let it happen. You won't do it perfectly every time. But just keep doing that. And we just, you know, we got the Christmas. Everybody goes to church at Christmas. So keep doing it. Share, invite, ask people to come with you. Give them dessert. They come with you. Don't do a whole big dinner thing. Just dessert's fine. You know, run to Aldi's, get something, you know. I don't want you to be put out too much. You know, I'm here, I'm here for you. I, you know, I don't just give you the Bible. I give you some really practical things in life. Anyways. Secondly, keep sacrificing. So if you're working, if you got that nailed down, keep doing it. Keep working. Work hard because you're working for the Lord. So work hard. I don't, I don't mean work seven days a week. Right? Because Scripture says don't do that. We've been given a gift of what they call a Sabbath day. We're supposed to take a day off. All right. It's not commanded for us New Testament Christians, but it is a strong suggestion that is a gift to us. Take the break. God will provide. You've got to trust him on that. You need to be here with your church family. Thursday nights is a great opportunity to be with your church family. But keep doing it. Keep doing life, God, and look for opportunities to share with those in our church family. I'm not talking just financially. We've got people who need, who need other people to walk with them through difficult times in their lives. And we've got people who are currently doing that. I, mean, I just got a call last night, I think it was, somebody who had called somebody else in our church, and so that person called me and said, hey, just want to let you know, you know, I'm walking through something with somebody and just want you to be aware of it. And, and then they asked me for advice. I'm like, man, you're doing a great job. Just keep, you know, keep doing it. So I used to get all those phone calls. And I'll still take all those phone calls if, if I get them. It's awesome. But we're doing what God's called us to do as a church family. So we have other people who are walking through things with other people, which is awesome to see. So if you're not working, obey God, get a job, allow him to provide for you through that, and then join the rest of us who are doing what we need to be doing by sacrificing and caring for other people in our church. And let's just continue, to, as we get into 2022, let's just continue to steamroll ahead, doing what God's called us to do, seeing people come to Christ, helping them walk through their challenges in that new relationship, and we'll be sure that God's going to continue to bless, strengthen us, protect us, and give us what we need. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close in prayer. <clears throat>
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you, um, it's just, I say this all the time, but it's just uh, so cool how you deal with very practical aspects of our lives. And Lord, as I said, it's not complex, but it, you know, it is, it is difficult at times. We're so stuck in how we think, and, and we think we know better, and then we learn that there's a different way of doing life, that you've got a different way, and the big thing is us depending on you and trusting you that your way is the right way. So Lord, I pray that in our church family, those of us who have placed our faith in you, that we would continue to grow in that relationship with you, that we would grow in the love of God, that we would grow in the steadfastness of Christ, that we'd be faithful to do what you've called us to do. We'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being with us. Have a great rest of the week and represent Christ. Don't forget those uh, cards too.